Hey, Weedsers. Are you going to be in Austin for South by Southwest? If so, I'd love to invite you to join me for a live taping of the Ezra Klein Show. I'll be at the Deep End by Vox Media on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30, talking with Melinda Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We're going to be talking about the work they do, about the state of public health worldwide, about what is and isn't getting better in the world. I'm very excited to have this conversation. The, the, the work they do is important, and it is controversial, and it is interesting, and it is making a lot of lives better, and there's a lot around that to dig into. So I think, I think that's going to be a very good episode. And you should come see it. The Deep End by Vox Media. We are taking over the Belmont for a three-day event at South by Southwest. Again, that is from March 9 to March 11th. And it isn't just me. You're going to get live podcasts from many Vox Media podcast network favorites, including Kara Swisher's Recode Decode, The Verge's Vergecast. But again, you can join me for a live taping The Ezra Klein Show on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30 for a conversation with Melinda Gates. To request an invitation, go to voxmedia.com slash sxsw-2018. Again, that is voxmedia.com slash sxsw-2018. Uh, I know that is super memorable, but again, sxsw-2018. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Arming teachers, though. It's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. <laughs> Honestly, like, it, you just imagine just proposing that to just a person in France. They would look at you like you're having a nervous breakdown. But to a person who works in a school. <laughs> That's yeah. true, too. You don't have to go outside the country. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Dara Lynn, Herman Lopez. We mentioned with, with Ezra and Sarah earlier in the week the, the Parkland, Florida shooting, um, but I think we really wanted to sort of delve into that and into the, the guns topic here. Uh, Herman knows a lot about this. Dara knows uh, a lot more than, than I do. I gotta say, I sort of, when we were thinking about this a couple days ago, I'm, I really like wanted to do like a measured take on this, because I think progressive people actually get a fair amount wrong about this issue. Uh, but then Donald Trump kind of wandered into the room with <clears throat> what I have to say is like the stupidest fucking idea I've ever heard, <laughs> that we need to pay bonuses to Man, teachers. Okay, it was not carry... even the stupidest idea Donald Trump had this week. It was not even the stupidest <laughs> idea Donald Trump had Thursday. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Well, wait. Yeah, no, it, it, it is a tremendously stupid idea. I just, we have to understand that we're in the upside down. Okay, but... I mean, I understand how polls work, but it was like Trump said this, so people talked about it for three days. So now, like forty-three percent of people are like, "Yeah, we should we should totally pay teachers bonuses to carry guns into school." I'm trying to even picture how it's supposed to work. Like, it's like, you know, I don't know. Like Mr. Hervis, he's up there at the blackboard. He's like doing math problems. He's got like a gun in his left hand, ready to spin around and the, <laughs> like like what what so, are they envisioning? I here? think the the image here and this is not to say that it is a good idea but like there was a twitter thread that went viral last week about a mother who was talking to her son about they had had an active shooting drill and her son was talking about how his job was to with a few other students push the table in front of the door and then stand behind the table so that those students were like you know if they if the shooter came in they would be the ones who got shot and not the rest of their classmates and she was like who the heck volunteered you, the one black kid in this class, to be the one who was standing? And he's like, no, I volunteered. I, you know, I, I don't want everyone else to die and me to live. And it was very, you know, sad and moving and all of that. So I guess the logic here is the teacher will be the one behind the door with the gun, you know, while the shooter is prowling the hallways. So if the shooter tries to break into any one classroom, you know, th- that is not a defense. It is merely an illustration. 
There are layers to how bad of an idea <clears throat> this is. Like let's let's feel those. Let's let's start with the fact that if you look at just people in mass shooting situations, there have been multiple simulations where people have tried this out. Most people, even while they're armed, will just not react in time and actually kill the shooter because these are horrible, traumatizing events where people are scared out of their minds, rightfully, and just will not react correctly. I mean, life is not a video game where you can just easily shoot anyone in your way. You have to, like, take your time, aim, and so on, and and most people are just not capable of doing that, even if they have a gun, and even if they have, like, advanced training in some cases. There's FBI data showing that half of police officers who respond to active shooting situations, almost half of them are wounded or killed in the process. These are people who are, like, super trained to do this. Uh, They do it full time, and still almost half of them get at least injured. A teacher who gets some training and a gun over the weekend or over summer break is probably going to do way worse than that and could, like, cause a chaotic shootout that will actually hurt more people. I'm glad that you brought the analogy to police officers in early because it's not like we don't have, you know, examples in real life of people whose job it is to carry guns and be able to protect other people from dangerous armed human beings. Like, we literally have built it into American law that a police officer gets a certain amount of leeway if they end up shooting a person who maybe didn't pose an immediate danger to others just because we've decided that, like, it is better for them to be a little over-aggressive than to be a lot under-aggressive. That is something that a lot of people are working to change right now. There's a lot of skepticism that it's actually a good idea to build in the you know, idea of a justifiable homicide for a police officer who doesn't have an immediate sense that somebody is going to pose a danger or or who thinks that they're going to pose a danger just because they're reaching for their waistband or they look big and threatening or they're on marijuana, so who knows what they could do, which are all things that police officers say in depositions all the time. Why would be a good idea to give that responsibility to another group of people who don't necessarily have those legal protections or who you could give teachers those legal protections. But like, do we really want a world in which teachers can be told that if the 16 year old in their class is like, you know, standing up and looking threateningly at them, that they it's okay for them to fire the gun that is under their desk. Like, these are things that anyone who has, you know, Anyone who has worked, who has looked at actual police shootings, anyone who has fired a gun, you know, understands that there are a lot of very difficult decisions that have to be made just to successfully pull the trigger on something, and that human beings are often clouded by judgment and don't necessarily understand who the right person is. Something like what happens in Parkland happens, it, it dominates news attention for at least a couple days, and, and in this case, for, for longer than that. Um, but quantitatively, Right. You have more people in a typical year in the United States die in gun accidents than in these kind of spectacular shooting type incidents. And so just, you know, one question about there's there's 3.2 million teachers in America. If you gave, I think Trump was talking about 20 to 30, 40 percent of them guns, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of additional firearms. You're also talking about a lot of money if you're giving them bonuses for a, I mean, schools, schools have like an actual educational 
function <laughs> that resources need to be dispensed on. They're not like security services. You're, you're talking about a, a very large increase in like the quantity of firearms that are specifically in this hypothetical like going to be around children, a mix of like children who it might be dangerous for because little kids do dumb stuff and like teenagers who it might be dangerous for because teenagers do a different kind of dumb stuff from little kids. But like either way, it's a question of like these school shootings, they focus public attention on the question of gun violence in America. But they're also not like a great actual lens for like seeing the scope of the issue or really the nature of it and also to be honest i mean if this was if if these school shootings were all there were to gun deaths in america it's not clear to me that it would actually be worth doing much of anything like in terms of big policy changes about it i mean it's it's terrible but quite small relative to the overall scale of gun homicides in the United States, gun suicides, gun accidents, right? It's it's when you hear, you know, 30,000, whatever, very big numbers of deaths every year, that's incorporating a lot of other kinds of stuff. And that's like why there's a serious issue that people might want to put big changes on the table for. And the idea of like incorporating more weapons into more situations with more kids around is like it's very much backward right and- I, I think the the one thing i, I want to emphasize there though is that even in the frame of like thinking about this as as a like even if you want school shooting specific policy solutions i don't think that arming teachers would actually help at all I mean, you you can just imagine this scenario where this untrained teacher is going trying to chase after somebody who's carrying around an AR-15 in a class in a classroom, and the, there's just no guarantee that this teacher will actually be able to take down the shooter and not hurt anyone else. But I think that like the bigger point you you made there, which is like that the problem fundamentally in the U.S. is it has way too many guns, and these guns make it very easy for somebody to escalate just about any situation into a violent encounter where somebody dies. So the idea of like putting more guns into any setting, including schools, that will just make gun violence situations worse in general. Even if a teacher does manage to, in some cases, actually stop a shooter, the the downsides of like now the teacher – I mean there are videos out there of teachers literally attacking their students because they get in arguments with the students. There are tons of arguments. There are fights in schools between students. It, the idea that you would place a gun in these situations, allowing somebody to reach for it and turn what would otherwise just be a, a stupid fist fight or somebody pushing somebody around into like – an actual deadly shooting is is just so ridiculous. And even in a shooting scenario, right? I mean, Trump was talking about like, well, maybe if the teacher was also a veteran. But like, I mean, I know people who served in the military. Some of them served in like infantry roles where they carried rifles. And I mean, they all train, but like I, I, I know people who have flown airplanes for the military, right? Like they're not ready to like do solo combat in a confusing indoor situation, right? It's not, it's not just like teachers are not trained to do this, but like very, very few people 
are well-trained enough to reliably handle these kind of situations. And we even saw in, in Parkland, it turns out, there was a, a sheriff's deputy, I guess, a police officer who was stationed at the school. He uh, seems to have not gotten and intervened in this situation. He's been criticized, I, I think, rightly for that. Uh, but also you can understand, like, why he didn't come in guns blazing, that even even police officers who are trained to do this thing, whose job it is, is to, like, put their lives at risk in these kinds of situations, it's not like that's the routine daily work of a police officer. Like, the average cop you meet out on the street doing his job has not, like, slain a dozen active shooters in chaotic situations. Like, it's just not... It's not a skill set that anybody in any sizable quantity reliably possesses. And, like, we do, you know, police, like, they do their best when these things happen. Uh, There's a reason these shooting rampages stop. But, like, there's no, like, good way to do this. We don't have, like, James Bond on campus to stop everyone. I think that it's it's worth being really explicit about what we're talking about with the relationship between school shootings and gun violence, right? Like, there are a few kind of basic facts here. One is that the problem of gun violence in America is not primarily a problem of school shootings or even mass shootings, right? Like like Matt said, it's, it's not even necessarily a, a problem of gun, intentional gun homicides primarily, but like, even everyday gun violence does not look like the spectacular gun violence that we saw in Parkland last week. The second truth is that the gun debate in America is 100% tied to events that, of spectacular violence. I can't think of the last time that gun, that guns and gun control and gun violence were on the national agenda, that people were talking about them in Sunday talk shows, that wasn't about a mass shooting and often a school shooting. That these these are the events that kind of focus people's brains and. Maybe it's just because they're, you know, the numbers are high, that kind of thing. It's also the case that people get inured to the idea that there's a lot of gun violence in inner cities. There's a lot of gun violence among, like, poor people of color. And that that doesn't really focus attention so much as a school where people are expected to be safe and where children are expected to be innocent. The stuff that, you know, Herman is talking about with the kind of downstream effects of, you know, teacher-student teacher confrontations that we're already aware of, those are the things that happen in schools that we don't think of as, like, the schools that need to be protected in school shootings, but that nonetheless are the schools where the metal detectors get put, where all of the police officers are, you know, the places that already look like what... Donald Trump and others are, suppo- are are saying all schools should look like those places exist. It's just that people like Donald Trump don't necessarily see them. And so when we're talking about kind of gun policy generally, it's worth it to point out that on the one hand, politically, you know, there's an effort to turn this kind of attention to spectacular violence and to, you know, middle class teenagers into something that is actually going to help a broader but different group of people. Uh, and also that the the policies that you think of as school shooting specific policies aren't necessarily going to stop school shootings because, as Matt was saying, school shootings are spectacular violence that people aren't necessarily trained for, but that are in probably, you know, ways that 
the people the people who want to stop gun violence don't want to see going to trickle down to, you know, less enfranchised populations where it's going to be used as another way to keep people down. Well, okay, but part of the reason why the gun control debate has come to focus so heavily on these school shootings is that violent crime levels in the United States have fallen a lot you know uh, from from where they were historically in the in the 90s when when there was a federal assault weapon ban passed and there was more politics behind gun control there was also a lot more crime in general right and this was a heyday of of tough on crime politics of three strikes and you're out laws but also of stricter gun control type rules right and then there was in the aughts some considerable rollback of that kind of stuff that was associated with a general reduction in like social concern about crime and that was also when congress because there had been a big movement by big city mayors to really tackle uh, the gun industry to do lawsuits holding gun uh, manufacturers responsible for the use of their guns in you know more or less ordinary crime type stuff and congress immunized gun manufacturers against those kind of lawsuits. I mean, at a time when Republicans controlled Congress, but also Democrats voted for that bill. But it was a time of when when public concern about crime reached a kind of low ebb. And then post Sandy Hook, we've seen the issue, we've seen the gun issue put back on the table in, I think, actually a different, you know, a, a totally different political type context. Although, you know, you see like, Michael Bloomberg is the guy behind Every Town for, for Gun Safety. He, he's the founder. He's the main donor to it. They are very active in this sort of mass shooting politics. But he obviously was mayor of New York City, was a leading proponent of um, this gun litigation strategy at his time. And there was never in his years as mayor this kind of school shooting in New York City. What there is is like a lot of people in New York, some of whom get shot on any given day. And he, you know— was he was tough on crime on a sort of broad front. So I, I, I don't think that element of it is is gone exactly. It just doesn't have like the juice in Congress that it once had. I mean, it, I feel like you're assuming a correlation between actual crime rates and public perception of crime rates that like the data doesn't actually show. Like in any given year, half of Americans or more will say that crime is going up. Like it is and it's it's something where, you know, and this is a dynamic that we've talked about on the weeds recently in a residentially and socially segregated world, a lot of people's exposure to crime happens through news. And that means that, A, the kind of spectacular violence of school shootings gets a lot of oxygen. But B, like, you have a lot of suburbanites thinking that inner cities are no-go zones, right? That, like, this is this is why kind of some of the sanctuary city MS-13 stuff is so powerful. Because people genuinely – there there are, does appear to be a constituency of Americans that genuinely appears to believe that it's not safe for them to go into major American cities because they're so violent. Right. But, I mean, I guess this is what I'm saying. If you turned American politics over to the elected officials from majority minority urban neighborhoods. Oh yeah. Okay. Guns fair. would be banned yeah. completely in the United States, right? Like it's it's just like it's not true that like the epicenter of anti-gun politics in the United States is white suburban swing districts. That's fair. You know what I mean? Like it's true that those things put it on on the media agenda, but like the reason Chicago keeps getting invoked in some hazy way here is that, like, the elected officials from the city of Chicago are very hostile to guns. 
Right. And and I mean to to this point, I, I think you said earlier, like levels of gun violence have dropped over the past few decades, and and that's generally true in terms of like there are fewer homicides or fewer less violent crime in general. But one thing to emphasize is that U.S. levels of gun violence are still way higher than other developed nations, mm-hmm. even after that decline. And that's felt a lot in this everyday gun violence that we see all over the country. We've, we've heard a lot about Chicago. Trump was talking a lot about Chicago last year while it was reporting an increase in murders. I mean, we now hear about Baltimore because they're also going through a similar issue. And like these, these kinds of events, they do drive local politics instead in terms of like what we should do about restricting access to guns and whatnot. One thing to emphasize, though, is that the, the reason that those local politicians, those local and state restrictions aren't enough is because if you're in Chicago and you impose all these restrictions on firearms, that's that's good within the city. But if you travel a few hours out to Indiana or Gary, Indiana, like j- just specifically, which is almost basically a, a suburb of Chicago, you would suddenly be able to buy firearms with much less laws because Indiana doesn't have restrictions nearly as strict as Chicago. And that's that's one reason why these these local politicians who are, are involved in this issue emphasize national solutions, and that's why they focus so much on these mass shooting and school shooting events, because they know that these local and state solutions just frankly aren't enough. And these events, for whatever reason, capture a national audience, and then the national audience it was is what's necessary to actually address this issue. Wait, I mean that's I mean in some ways the the, the tragedy of it is that like you can't create like force fields around left wing cities that like repel the guns from them exactly. because because you have because I think you frequently hear I mean something. I, I've heard Bernie Sanders say, but something I used to hear Howard Dean say, uh, Vermont happens to be a state that is like both very liberal and very rural and has a high uh, level of gun ownership for such a blue state, is they will want to say what exactly what I would want to say if I was a Democratic Party elected official from Vermont, which is like, we should have a federalism solution. Like here in Vermont, like we don't have a lot of crime. We have a lot of rolling hills. There's a certain kind of culture. Like we should let people have their guns and blah, 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 blah. And then if people like over in Boston or over in New York want a different stricter set of rules because they have a different set of problems, like that's fine. Like we don't need to have like a huge, vicious national culture war over whether or not people can have guns in their house. But as you're saying, Herman, like it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Like it, it's that strategy is completely ineffective, and like it, it requires you to nationalize this debate, on which people have both like different views, but also like are legitimately in different situations, and like that's that's hard. Like uh, nothing about American politics is like that well designed to like let people bridge a cultural chasm that like isn't just totally made up nonsense but like actually reflects different situations that prevail in in different kinds of places um and you know i mean i think you really you really see that in 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 the wake of of these kinds of things and particularly in like marco rubio's strategy at, at the town hall was to sort of try to get the democrats up there to admit that they favor more extreme measures mm-hmm. than they were putting on the table, um, which I think was a clever 
strategy on his part because like I mean specifically what happened was he was talking about an assault weapons ban and then he was saying look to do what you guys want you would need to ban all semi-automatic uh, long guns of, of any kind um, and that's like are, is that what you think and then the Democrats got very sort of shy right and it's easy but the crowd went wild. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that, like, this is and, – and this is – you know, it speaks to everything you're saying that, like, there is a – you know, there is a constituency for whom that seems like a very obvious and reasonable solution. And it's just not a constituency that Democrats can be confident is, like, 51 percent of the population. Right. Or, or that cares passionately about the right. – But, right, there's a large number of people, you know, people uh, – culturally liberal people living in and around big cities who will say, like, look, like, if you want to have a gun shooting hobby, like, that's fine. But we need, like, rules around your gun shooting hobby that guarantee that it will not harm anybody. Right. Right? So you could have, like, single-shot rifles. You could have pistols that are in lockers at ranges. Maybe off-duty police officers could carry – you know, that whole sort of suite of things. And then – but that's so much more far-reaching yeah. than the kind of legis- – that would be like a, a European-style gun regime. Mm-hmm. And I think the evidence is clear that like if you had drastically fewer firearms, like f- you'd have more people sort of getting smacked in the head with baseball bats and fewer being shot and killed. You'd have way fewer suicides. You'd have fewer gun accidents. Like the country would be much safer, but you would be – meaningfully impinging on the lifestyle of people who enjoy the gun ownership thing. I do think that, like, even the the kind of policy regime you're suggesting of, like, it's fine if you have your gun shooting hobby is to the right of what, like, to the extent that there is a mobilized left on this issue, they may not necessarily be, like, single-issue gun voters, but there definitely is a constituency of people who do not understand and are moderately disgusted by the idea that shooting a lethal weapon could be a hobby for anyone. And like this definitely, you know, there there is a a well, yes, of course we want to take all your guns. It is bad for you to have guns that may not reflect the mainstream even liberal position on the issue, but that the people who are passionate about this aren't passionate about, I really want to protect other people's gun shooting hobbies. They're passionate about the idea that this is a, like, a barbarism. Right, guns so, are and, and, you know, like, card, cards on the table here. You know, I am a member of a gun-owning household. I don't have a problem with that. We are, you know, I, I believe very strongly in, in responsible gun ownership. Uh, I think that I have I have shot a gun. I think that shooting a gun is similar to driving a car insofar as if you are not aware at pretty much every point that what you are doing could be incredibly dangerous, you are a danger to yourself and others. Like I think that that is something that it's very important to be cognizant of, but this, it's also cogni- important to be cognizant of that when you're driving a two-ton hunk of metal. So I, I do think that there is a certain amount of, you know, discussed politics going on here that might make it a little bit harder to even figure out whether the you-can-keep-your-gun-hobby, you know, policy regime is, is practicable. Right. And, and to that point, I mean, I would like to see all guns banned. Period. Right, so, right. You, you uh, actually the, do want to take people. So guns. the other, but don't you want to see like sugar banned? Like you want everything illegal. <laughs> Sugar's fine. We could just put a tax Every, on everything it. should be illegal except marijuana. Right, that's the Herman view. <laughs> and ferrets, yeah, ferrets. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
No, I mean, in general. Do we at least like? So, I mean, you're in favor of safe injections, injection sites, right? Like, what about like safe shooting ranges? Well, sure. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm not sure what a safe shooting range looks like. A people. I don't know what a safe injection range site looks like, right? I like, mean, shooting at a target seems safer than injecting yourself with heroin. Uh, I would. I bet there are more accidents and like injuries and deaths at actual shooting ranges than there are in like. Vancouver's safe injection sites. I feel like I mean, this is going to be the NRA's end. new favorite podcast. <laughs> um, all right. Let, let's take a break, and then we'll come back Keep keep talking about guns. When we started Vox in 2014, it was it was practically the Stone Ages, and we had to, you know, we we posted our job openings uh, up on different job boards, and then just kind of waited to see if anybody would apply. Uh, eventually, we we got great candidates, we got a great site, but it was very inefficient. Uh, ZipRecruiter knows there's a smarter way than that, and so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. Uh, ZipRecruiter it learns what you're looking for, it identifies people with the right experience, and then it invites them to apply for your job. Uh, these invitations. They, they revolutionize how you find your next hire. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter, they don't stop there. They highlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. Uh, so the right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is the best way to find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And so right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. For free! Uh, you just go to ZipRecruiter.com weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com weeds. ZipRecruiter com slash weeds. They really want you to know it. ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. It's the smartest way to hire. All right. And we're back. So, so, but let's actually like talk through this Take because your guns, you're the, you're you the person at this table who has actually dug into the like what works and doesn't research. And like, yes, we're making fun of you because you are a Puritan, but also like you're coming from a perspective where like you understand what works and what doesn't. So tell us like in, in Hermonotopia, what is, what is the gun policy and why? What's the research showing you that? I mean, in general, you would, if in like my ideal world, we would look at Japan, which banned all civilian possession of swords and guns. And f- since then, they have maintained that ban pretty stringently. People can still obtain weapons for like hobbyist stuff, like like target range and stuff. But they have to go through a lot of hurdles. The police can at any time just drop by your house and make sure you're storing everything correctly. If there's a national emergency, the government could take your your guns temporarily from you and how about your swords yeah i'm not totally sure how it works with swords (laughs) is that is the national emergency and taking people's guns something that the government actually does or is it just like it's written into the law but no one has actually used it i am actually not sure whether it's been used before but i i do know it's it's written into the law uh in in general though the idea is like that you are you are allowed to have these weapons, but you have to clear a lot of barriers, and they're only allowed in very specific circumstances because in Japan they just do not want people who don't need them, like serious, like unless you're a police officer, you you just should not have a firearm. So that would be the Herman Lopez ideal. And let's be clear here: it is not like nobody in Japan has guns other than police officers, right? Like there is obviously like organized crime in Japan. Right. Like there's a certain this this is not a 100 percent effectiveness policy. But what you're saying is that it is at a more tolerable level. I mean, it's at a much more tolerable level. In the 80s, there were like I think it was around a dozen 
gang-related murders, and that was a bloodbath. That was reported as a bloodbath in Japanese press. Like, throughout this entire decade, they had maybe a dozen murders related to these gang fights, and that was considered a crisis. One of my my, my favorite movies is a 1989 uh, a Takeshi Katano movie called Violent Cop. It's it's about a cop who's violent, but like, be, but like because it's Japan, he's like weirdly not that violent. <laughs> like he's kicks a lot of guys and he like slaps them around. But like in an an American movie called Violent Cop, there would be like Mel a, Gibson would a be body count in the hundreds. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like they're just, I mean, it goes to show as you're saying, it's not like there's no crime in Japan. Yeah. Right? right? It's just that, like, guns are... I mean, there's a reason soldiers have guns, right? Like, it's, that's a really good way to kill people. Uh, yeah, is, but... So, my other question here is suicides, right? Because, like, we hear about, like, Japan's, like, you know, despair problems, suicide problem, blah, 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 blah. In the U.S., you know, what, like, re, you know, the kind of responsible wonks like you and others keep pointing out is, like, guns are a problem, not least because they make it easier for people to commit suicide. Like, is that... Is... Is there evidence that that's that like the Japanese suicide rate would, you know, is, like is being depressed by that? Or is that an argument that maybe, you know, suicide is a little bit more resistant to, to gun policy than homicide is? I mean, at, at the end of the day, what what's going on in Japan and also some other countries in the region regarding suicides, there's there's a there seems to be like a lot of cultural factors there. And that is important to point out in that guns are not the only contributor to people killing themselves. Uh, but based on the other research we have, they are a big factor. A surprising amount of suicides are almost impulsive in that, like, within a few hours, somebody will decide, I, I want to do this and actually act on it. So if in those in that time frame, you can limit the their ability to act in a lethal way, that will actually that that could prevent the suicide or if they try it it it's much less likely to be successful one good study on this comes out of Israel where they essentially uh didn't allow soldiers to take their guns home with them and there was a very significant decrease in the number of suicides there so i mean it's it's hard to say just how much it's depressing suicides in Japan but there, there is presumably some effect just based on all this other research. So, but the the general point I think is that, and and why Japan isn't ideal is like the idea is there are just way too many guns out there. Like I mentioned, that that lets all these situations from suicide to homicide to like petty disputes just escalate into violence. And Japan from the start has made it a point that it will limit the amount of guns in circulation. And that has helped it from the start maintain just really low levels of gun violence compared to other countries. So given that we live in neither Japan nor Hermontopia, like the the policies that actually kind of percolate up to Congress don't tend to be taking people's guns. They tend to be things like, you know, AR-15s or assault weapons or background checks. Like what are what's the track record on more moderate Gun control. Yeah, I think it, the the idea is if if you look at um, I think one good example on this is Missouri. Missouri used to have um, uh, what's called a permit to purchase handgun licensing plan, essentially. So so if you had if you were going to buy a handgun, you would have to go through everyone would have to go through a background check, have a license for it, etc. Missouri repealed that in 2007, and it had been around for decades. I think since the 1920s. 
And immediately that year, gun homicides went up. And it, what's important to emphasize here is other types of homicides, non-gun homicides, did not go up. So you saw these gun homicides immediately go up along with the actual amount of guns in circulations. And not only the amount of guns in circulation, but guns from within Missouri were were more likely to be caught by police in, in crime scenes and things like that. So that suggests that even a, a measure that would be like mild, it's essentially universal background checks, does have an appreciable impact. You can also get into other stuff like a, like another one that, that's really being pushed after Florida is an assault weapons ban. This one, the research is like way weaker on in terms of like the U.S. did have a 10-year assault weapons ban in place from 94 to 2004. And if you look at the research, the the amount of gun crimes did not actually decrease appreciably thanks to that. And research, the researchers say there are caveats to that. The, the, the law had a bunch of loopholes for one, since the U.S. does not have universal background checks, there's a question of how well you can enforce an assault weapons ban. I mean, people could probably just buy AR-15s or, or whatever just without going through the background check at all. And the the other question is, like, if the ban had been in place for longer, would that have a had a more appreciable effect? Meaning, so so we have these assault this assault weapons ban. I mean, assault weapons do make shootings deadlier in terms of like they just allow people you to kill way more people. So. Perhaps an assault weapon ban that had been in place longer could have, over time, just made shootings less lethal, and that could have had an effect. But generally, what we've seen from from '94 to 2004 in the U.S. is that this assault weapons ban did not have a major effect on gun crime. Interestingly, though, it did have an effect on Mexico's gun homicides. After the assault weapons ban was repealed in the U.S., the amount of assault weapons homicides in Mexico went up because the country gets a lot of its guns from the U.S. since the U.S. lacks gun laws, and that that led to more gun deaths in Mexico. So I am intrigued by this because I feel like there's also kind of a historical, like, you know, there are Mexico has had like is a lot more violent now than it was 20 years ago uh, for reasons that are not entirely about guns. So I would be interested to see how robust the methodology here is. But I trust that you're not like coming here and spewing crappy research what, on the what, weeds. What would a universal like what would a universal background check and licensing regime? Because that 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 to me sounds like the kind of thing that is like robust enough to make a difference, but not so far. But like that, you could also admit, totally imagine the median voter hearing mm-hmm. that and being like, "Yeah, that makes sense." So, what would it look like? Yeah, if- like yeah, like what like what does that actually mean? Like what 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 would what would what would be done mechanically? Well, I mean, you you could like go to like just north to Canada to see how it would look like. And basically, what it means is is right now, if if you're a licensed dealer, you have to do a, a background check to if if you sell a gun to anyone. So. That's if you're a licensed dealer. The thing is, is that a lot of people sell guns who aren't licensed dealers. In in terms of like, like if I'm a family member or if I have a friend and I want to give them a gun, I'll like, I'll do that. I'll like give them or sell them a gun. I do not have to do a background check for that. That's this just, is like my father-in-law owns a bunch of guns, and so he could just like sell one of them to somebody. Yeah, and and you do not like technically have to do a background check for that, mm-hmm. and. 
the what what it means to have universal background checks is that every single transfer sale etc would require a background check so even these private sales between individuals and to be clear it's not just family members it's these these happen over, online right people will sell guns one on one to each other online uh, Facebook, Craigslist, et cetera. Have sure. It's, I mean, it's like furniture, right? I mean, it's a, any kind of durable goods. Yeah. There's like a large secondary market because like old guns work. Yeah, exactly. Like I was about to say Facebook, Craigslist, et cetera, have taken steps to try to prevent that from happening on their sites, but there are always going to be websites where that's right. possible. So the, the idea is you should at least require legally that um, that there should be a background check. And then you get into the question of, well, how are you going to enforce that and whatnot? And that like starts getting into questions about, like, well, you need to start tracking these guns better, maybe have a registry in, in some cases, maybe have licenses in some cases. And that's the way you would actually start making sure that these background checks are happening since somebody, if they're like reporting, hey, I transferred this gun to this person, the next question is, okay, did you do a background check? And that's kind of how the system would start looking. And if, if you look at the polling, universal background checks are very popular. The, the I think, but the stuff like a registry and licensing schemes, they have less support among voters, but that's kind of what you would need to start actually enforcing a universal background check. Presumably telling people, hey, you legally have to do this would get a lot of people to comply with that. But uh, a lot of people also wouldn't, and, and that's that's when it starts getting like the the details start getting a little. But so more it, would, it would it would look more like how cars look, exactly. Right? Where like you can sell your car obviously to somebody else, but there's a formal process, right? I mean, if the police officer pulls you over speeding, he asks for your license and your registration, right? Like you have to keep detailed records of who is the owner of every single car in every single state in America. And if the police get a report about a given license plate, like they can look it up in a computer, right? I mean, this is the kind of stuff, right, that like has always been fought very heavily sort of on the theory that if the government has an accurate searchable database of where all the guns are and who owns them, that that then lets you confiscate them in some hypothetical like second move. but that's what you – that's what like an efficacious, rigorous background checking system would require. Right. right. And it's really hard to overstate just how powerful that like fear is. I remember in – when there was in 2011 a bill in Congress to require all employers to verify the uh, immigration status of their employees. One – not the NRA but the Gun Owners of America, which is the group to the right of the NRA – uh, was pretty strongly opposed to it because they felt that any attempt to create a strong centralized database could be used to become a gun ownership database. You know, we were I'm talking earlier about the um, about the kind of political constituency that is. I have my guns. I like them. Um, but you know, the gun shooting hobby constituency is not. That's a very different political justification from the. Second Amendment says that in case the government becomes tyrannical, my guns are going to be the one thing protecting the republic argument. And the fact that the two are kind of mixed both in the political debate and in, you know, kind of presented as the same group of people who care about both things doesn't actually reflect necessarily all gun owners, but is incre- does make it so that gun owners as a political group get used as this, well, you know, no one wants you to do anything that would make it easier to track 
you know, background checks or a registry because they're proud of their guns. Well, this is an interesting, you know, there's like a, there's a theoretical version of the United States of America in which strong gun rights is a civil libertarian cause. And like in that universe, the ACLU is a big supporter of Second Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. And also the NRA is strongly allied with groups that say protest police brutality. Right. Yes. And and now there are there are individual human beings. I think some of them in the Daryl Lind household who like <laughs> are very much in that like zone of convergence. Yes. But in the like actual world, it's 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 actually the opposite of that, right? And that like the same political constituency for everybody needs an AR fifteen at home to overthrow the government is also the people who are like, you have to stand up for the national anthem yeah. to worship the almighty power of the state. And, and I mean, you really saw this come to a, a head in the, the Philando Castile case, which... Which was about a public school employee, for the record, as long as we're talking right. about arming teachers. But I mean, it was, you know... Everybody, I would say on both sides, right? I mean, people on the left understood that as like a civil rights complaint. And people on the right also understood it as a civil rights complaint. Yes. And nobody understood it. Really. I mean, again, I don't and want to say literally I mean, this is something no that probably everyone around this table remembers. But just to make sure listeners remember as well, the NRA put out one statement Several days after the shooting, after several days of people going, what? why isn't the NRA talking about the fact that a legal gun owner was killed for having a gun? Um, put out a statement saying, well, we don't have all the facts yet. And that's a, that, That's all they did. And it, it was definitely a case of the NRA acting as a group within the Republican Party, which has been captured by one side of the culture war, rather than the NRA acting as a consistent organization in support of legal gun ownership. But I mean, but I also just think it's in terms of what is the practical cultural meaning of like concealed carry and particularly open carry laws, which you really saw like in the Tahrir Rice case, right, is that the sort of shared cultural understanding in like a state like Ohio is that the meaning of open carry laws is that white people will be able to openly carry firearms Mm -hmm. and they will be treated respectfully by law enforcement figures and that black people in some have theoretical sense could openly carry firearms, but also police officers might just shoot them on sight. Right. And right. And like you would not you would not advise like if if somebody can like a like a young African American man came up to me and said, like, Matt, like, I live in a dangerous neighborhood. I don't really have confidence in the police to like safeguard my interests in my community. I'm considering walking around openly carrying a firearm at all times, as is my right as a resident of Ohio. I'd be like, that's fucking crazy, man. Like, don't right. do that. Right. Like, and like, that's that's like a core issue here, right? In terms of like, what are we really talking about? Right. And to that point, I mean, one of the reasons that there was support for gun legislation in the 60s is because there were groups of black activists walking around carrying guns in public, and that scared the shit out of people. So that, to, to that point, that, that's always been part of this issue. One thing I wanted to like emphasize, though, just because just I probably wasn't too clear about this before, but in terms of like the licensing and registry, it is, like, it is definitely true that 
that would likely not get anywhere because of the NRA fear that like this will lead to confiscation down the line. But still, it is also important to emphasize that even without those measures, based on the research, just about anything that makes guns less accessible does lead to fewer gun deaths. It just wouldn't be the 100% sol- or even 50% solution that people hope it is. But based on the research, it would reduce the amount of gun deaths. But again, because of these like all these cultural forces, these fears of widespread gun confiscation at the, any moment the government and, – and that speaks to like Rubio's strategy, right? He wanted to make it seem like liberals really want harsher gun measures than they're letting on. That's exactly what he was getting at, tapping into that fear that the, at the end of the day, Democrats may say, yeah, we just want universal background checks. But what they really want is gun confiscation. I think it's worth pulling some of this together because the idea that like – guns and gun culture is for white people isn't just something that people who support guns and gun culture believe, right? Like there is, you know, there we have lots of evidence that it's not the number of Americans who own guns increasing. It's the number of guns that people who own guns have that like gun ownership is becoming not not an activity, but an identity in a particular way. And the, the more hardened that becomes, the more it gets associated with other cultural signifiers like being white, like believing that you should stand for the national anthem, like gun ownership and thinking of guns as a thing that people should have is getting caught up with all of this other stuff. So we don't, you know, obviously, like, it's not like we live in a world where only white people own guns, but the political meaning of gun ownership is becoming something that a lot of progressives, you know, including progressives of color, don't, aren't on board with, don't necessarily agree with. I haven't seen polling on this, but I would be shocked if the number of people who have never shot a gun or never held a gun isn't like fairly high among particularly young progressives, i.e. particularly the people who are extremely gung-ho about this wave of student activism after the Parkland shooting. I think that this is, you know, race, racial anxiety absolutely created the gun politics we have today. But the more hardened that gets, the more we're in a world where you're not going to have gun control being something that people use to fight you know, to like fight Black Panthers because gun control is now, ex- you know, increasingly explicitly something that progressive whites use against conservative whites. Right. Yeah. One thing that's weird is that the people most exposed to high levels of gun ownership, like if you think of somebody who's in a bad neighborhood in Chicago, they see the effects of gun violence and widespread gun ownership every day in their lives. And they're the ones who are more likely, just based on polling, just based on their political leanings, to oppose widespread gun ownership. They want more gun control in their lives. Whereas people who live in, say, white, suburban, rural areas, even though they have lower levels of gun violence, they seem to be more likely to think, I need this gun to defend myself and protect my family and whatnot. And it's really this strange dynamic where people, the people who you would think are less likely to need those guns to protect themselves actually want those guns more. And it's because the people who do see the effects of widespread circulation of guns in their neighborhoods, they understand that this results in a lot of unnecessary gun violence, and they don't want that to happen anywhere. 
I think this is an interesting complication of, you know, there's been a fight going on politically about the idea that the students in Parkland should, like, have any particular purchase on the gun debate, right? That, like, oh, they're just kids. They don't really understand the nuances of the policy issue. And on the other side, the left going, you know, they've just lived through a traumatic experience. They're talking about you know, they're using their knowledge of that to advocate for change. You know, isn't that the most powerful advocacy you can do? And it's hard to kind of take that debate seriously because it's very easy to understand that if the issue were, say, people killed by unauthorized immigrants, the positions would be exactly reversed, that conservatives would be saying, well, of course, we need to listen to these victims because something horrible has happened to them that shouldn't happen to anyone. And progressives would be saying, yes, but that's not actually reflective of the general state of policy, yada, yada, yada. But there is generally this sense that the victims of tragedy should have a particular voice in public policy debates about how to prevent that tragedy. They're, you know, People do think that 9-11 victims and first responders like were a kind of special case in talking about not only response, but the war on terrorism generally, that kind of thing. Sympathy does not appear to extend to the people who are the, you know, who you're talking about, right, who are the most likely to be exposed to everyday gun violence. It's kind of an interesting wrinkle in the idea that we need to be listening to those who are most directly affected. I do think, you know, I'm... In general, I'm not like big on listening to the victims uh, as a thing. It is interesting in this particular case, though, because we have these two very competing theories, specifically about the school shooting, right? Like, this is where we started, right? And like, one theory is the lesson of Parkland is like high school math teachers should have guns. And another theory is the lesson of Parkland is fewer people should have guns. And so the fact that People who were there and who know the teachers who were there and know what the school building is like and know what the atmosphere was like are not saying, by and large, oh, yeah, Trump is right. We needed more heavily armed teachers. That tells you something. I mean, I, I, it doesn't tell you that much, honestly. Like, you should, you should look, at, look at research on things. But it's, it's different from – you could imagine a world in which the NRA was making the case, like, look, guys, like, this was terrible, but a kind of normal, like, lame liberal case about something. But, like, we got to keep it in perspective. Like, it's just it's just not that large a phenomenon quantitatively. And then you'd have, like, sad, distraught people who are upset that their their friends and relatives were killed. And you'd be saying, like, eh, you know, how much weight do you, do you put on, on grieving people? But everyone at least purports to be saying that, like, they have a solution to this problem. And... You know, one side, like, really doesn't. I think generally people tend to respond to tragedies by saying that they have solutions because there isn't enough tolerance for saying, yes, this is bad, but we cannot actually legislate away anything bad happening to people. I would be much happier with a world in which, the, in, in which you know, one side could say, yes, we agree that this is an unfortunate consequence, but because it's not a terribly common phenomenon, we're not going to, like... We're not going to name any laws after anybody. So, Herman, that is not the world in which we take live. all our guns, Dara. Just, just let yeah, people I'm, I'm be slaughtered yep. uh, with well, impunity. Only, only, only I'll take the wise middle ground. This <laughs> is people. Universal background checks. With that, 
Thanks, everyone, for listening to uh, another episode of The Weeds. And uh, thanks to our, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. You know, check us out uh, on our, our Weeds Facebook group. Uh, we've got the new daily news explainer podcast, Today Explained, that is available on Stitcher and everywhere else that fine podcasts are sold. Uh, and we will be back next week. <laughs>